we really enjoyed stopping and honoring our moms this morning. It's, um, it's a piece that we always get the chance to, and I think that it was wonderful to see our kids, some big kids and some small kids doing that. But you know, 2020 just continues to deliver trouble, doesn't it? Um, I mean, NASA told us two weeks ago we narrowly missed being hit by a gigantic asteroid. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I didn't either, but it happened. And uh, over in East Africa, they are being ravaged by desert locust, uh, a plague of biblical proportion. And this past week, the Pentagon confirmed the authenticity of three videos showing unidentified aerial phenomena. That's right, people. UFOs. And as if crazy couldn't get more crazy, we were told this week that murder hornets have arrived in North America. Now, all of this happening in the middle of a coronavirus. And maybe it should make us start studying the book of Revelation. Uh, find out what those seven bowls of wrath are all about. Well, I'm I really not trying to make light of any of it. Maybe the UFOs and, and the murder hornets. But other than that, I think it's quite evident that our world is broken. Creation is groaning. And it's, it's groaning, like Apostle Paul said, like as in childbirth. It's waiting, longing to be set free from its bondage to corruption. This world is looking for a new day. And in the middle of what we're facing right now, I think it's especially suitable to continue looking at the story and the power of his resurrection, that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's, uh, it's by his resurrection that Jesus defeated the grave. He defeated death. But he also did something of great importance for his disciples. He came back to meet them where they were, where they were in their grief and their fear, in their doubt, their failure. And he dealt with all of that and sent them out as his witnesses to these facts. And he didn't just meet them once. We've been looking at the last several weeks that he keeps meeting them over and over and over again. He, he keeps showing up. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, Peter talks about this when he's preaching a sermon in Cornelius' house, which is an interesting story in and of itself. I mean, Cornelius is a Roman centurion, and Peter is preaching to him in his household. And this is what Peter said at that time. He said in Acts 10.40, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. It seems like, and I think Peter really attests to this, that God's design was to raise Jesus on the third day and to have him appear, not to everyone, but to this select group of witnesses. Now, listen. If it had been me, and we're all glad that it wasn't, I would have wanted to show up and settle the score. <laughs> I mean, you know, get Pilate and Caiaphas, all the religious leaders, all in one place, and poof, show up and prove to them just how wrong they had been. 
<clears throat> but he, he didn't do that, and I'm glad he didn't. That wasn't his plan. <clears throat> he showed up to a group of just 500 disciples, and he commissioned them to be his witnesses. That's the way God designed for us to know, through the, <clears throat> through the witness of others. And it's how God commissions each of us, once we do know, to witness to others. So as we look at these accounts that we've looked at over the last several weeks and continue to for the next couple, as we look at these accounts of the resurrected Jesus, we need to realize that all that time, God had a plan. He always does. So let's continue looking at another story found in John 21 and verse 1. John 21 and verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who were James and John, and two other disciples of his were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, <clears throat> when I read this uh, section of scripture, it, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, it really has this one phrase that jumps off the page at me. It's the very first phrase in verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. I, I love being reminded that after this, all of this, Whatever this is, Jesus reveals himself again and again, and if necessary, again. Whatever this is you're in right now, remember the revelation of Jesus is very near you. That after this, what you're in right now, what we're in right now, after this, he reveals himself again. They're, they're back at the Sea of Galilee because the angel had told three of the women to go and tell his disciples and Peter, which is a whole nother interesting phrase that he used that, 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 and Peter. But he said, go and tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. So they went. They had already seen Jesus, which was miraculous, twice in Jerusalem. And now they're back in Galilee. They're waiting for him to appear. But Apparently, they get bored. They're waiting for him, nothing. They're getting bored. So Peter says, guys, I'm going fishing. And there's no pushback from them. They, they agree. Yes, we'll go with you. I know some people, some people in our church that like to go fishing. And there's never a good reason not to go fishing. It's just that you can't always do it. But I, I seriously wonder if boredom was the only thing that was motivating Peter, he's, he's in a strange situation. He's now seen the resurrected Jesus twice while hiding with the others behind a locked door. And it's been 10, 12, 14 days, but we haven't heard any dialogue between Jesus and Peter, at, at least not yet. And now these seven disciples are waiting for Jesus to show up in Galilee like, like he promised. 
where it all started for most of them. And Peter is, is probably conflicted inside and not really sure where he stands with Jesus. I would imagine the not knowing was eating him alive. That, that churning in his gut, it's like the elephant in the room where, where things aren't resolved, matters are not settled. And it's in this quandary, right in the middle of it, that Peter says, I'm going fishing. I, I, think, I think Peter is showing us the tendency that we all have, something that we're all prone to do, that when things don't turn out the way we expected, we go back to what feels safe and familiar. We go back when Jesus is calling us to go on. That's a tendency we all have, to go back to what we used to do, even though he has called us out to do something we've never done. Peter, Peter had failed miserably. He had denied Jesus three times. He'd even cursed about it. And now he's had two encounters with the resurrected Jesus, and not a word that we see recorded in Scripture has been directed at him. That's very rare. Most every encounter you see throughout Scripture, there's some exchange between Jesus and Peter. Not these two times. Can you, can you imagine the thoughts that Peter is having? Oh, may, maybe Jesus doesn't know that I denied him. Uh, no, 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 he knows. No, maybe, maybe he doesn't remember. Oh, no, he would never forget. Maybe he doesn't care. Well... It's certain I'm not the rock that he thought I was. I'm sure he's disappointed in me. I, he's probably mad. Probably I've been demoted. He just hasn't told me yet. Peter, Peter had to be tormented. It had to be so difficult for this internal struggle that's going on in him. So there he is back in his old stomping grounds at the lake that he knows oh so well and doesn't really want to think about any of this anymore. So what does he do? He goes fishing. He goes back. We all do it, don't we? We're all prone to this. We, we failed, we've been disappointed, or we've disappointed others, we've ruined things. And so we go back to our old life where we feel safe, where things seem familiar. But it's on that shore of failure that Jesus shows up to restore us, to resurrect us again. Continue reading in John 21, verse four. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Uh, that's a recurring theme, by the way, not knowing that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, who is the writer of this gospel, John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the full net of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. 
man, Jesus, there you go again, showing up, even though they don't recognize you, which, like I said, is a recurring theme. Maybe it's because they weren't looking. Maybe it's because your, your presence had a different tone to it or a different angle, a different light. Whatever it was, they didn't recognize the one they needed most. And so there you are, Jesus, standing on the seashore, calling out to your disciples. And he used this term, this, it's a term of endearment. He says, children. It's the Greek word, paideia. It can mean friends, like the NIV says. It can also mean lads. Hey, lads, caught any fish? Their answer is a depressing no. They've been out all night long. By the way, they're fishermen. You'd think they'd know how to fish. It does seem like a lot of times when we're talking about them being fishermen, that they don't catch very many fish, but that's a whole nother story. It's depressing for fishermen to admit that they haven't caught any fish. Listen, here's another amazing thing about Jesus. He often reveals himself not by announcing who he is, but by asking a question to reveal where we are. Until we know where we are, we're never really sure that we need who he is. I think Jesus often does that when we're in trouble. Before he just comes right out and gives us the answer, he'll ask a question to help us discover what we truly deeply need. And I've, I've found in my own life that good questions, they help me. They help me discover the real problem. They help me anticipate and see where I am. And then they get me open to the fact that I need an answer beyond myself. Jesus asked me questions. Here's one that he uses a lot on me. This is what he says. Um, Chris, how's that working for you? <laughs> I hear him say that to me a lot. When I have kind of uh, determined a plan for myself outside of him, and it's not working so well, kind of like a Zoom meeting that I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And he says, Chris, how's that working for you? It normally stops me cold in my tracks. I, I realize I got out ahead of him. I pushed out in my boat and he wasn't in it. And I'm not catching anything. Here's, a, here's another question that our friend Robert Grant told us that he asked himself, why am I talking? He uses the acronym WAIT. Why am I talking? And I feel like I've heard Jesus ask me the same thing. Why, Chris, are you talking right now? I'm impressed that Jesus doesn't just show up to show off. Instead, he asks questions to reveal their needs. It's not just that they hadn't caught any fish. It's that they lacked his perspective. Why don't you throw the net on the right side of the boat, he said, and you'll find some there. You know, it's funny when you're the expert at something, but you have to be told how to do it. Where the thing that you're the best at is not the thing that you're very good at. This is how often Jesus gets our attention. He lets us fail in the things that we're good at to realize just how much we really need him. And that's what he's doing here. He's done it before. He'll do it with us again. 
So they're swallowing their pride. They have been fishing all night long, but sure, this guy on the seashore says, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Why not? So they did, and of course, we know the story. More fish than they could haul in. And it's then that John realizes and tells Peter, it's the Lord. It, it's funny to me that Peter still had to be told. He's a little dense sometimes, but he finally gets there. Peter, when John tells him it's the Lord, Peter's like, yes, it's the Lord. And he, he gathers himself, he jumps out of the boat because even though he's completely messed up, he wants to be close to Jesus. Look what happened next, verse nine. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Again, Jesus is serving them. He's making them breakfast. Now, it's amazing to realize that Jesus continues to serve his disciples. Just days earlier, he was washing their nasty feet. And now he's preparing their food. I love the, the part of this story that sticks out right here. It's, it's one of my favorite parts. They, they get up on land to realize he's made them breakfast. And he's cooked it over a charcoal fire. I, I've spoken about this before, but it, it is just too good not to share again. Why do you think John gives us such specific descriptions about this fire on which Jesus is cooking breakfast? Why is it so important? Why couldn't he just say Jesus cooked breakfast? He gives these details uh, on a charcoal fire. Seems like details we didn't really need to know. I've found that when details like this are in scripture, they could mean something very, very special. And for me, I think this charcoal fire indicates something special, something significant. I personally think that the smell of that charcoal fire in the crisp morning air was like a punch in the gut for Peter. I think that charcoal fire was a trigger for him something he would just as soon forget. And here's why I think that. Because three chapters earlier in John 18, we're told of the last time Peter stood around a charcoal fire. It was on the night that Jesus was arrested. Here's what it says in John 18, 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Have you ever noticed how your memories can be triggered by your senses? I mean, you, you hear something, you, you see something, you smell something, and it brings you back to a distant place. 
Sometimes it's, it's a place of delight, like hearing a song that you knew when you were a kid or smelling the perfume your grandmother used to wear. But sometimes it takes you to a place of failure, regret, a place that you failed him, like standing around a charcoal fire, warming yourself with those who had arrested and were going to crucify your Lord. That's a place that God wants to redeem. That's a place that God wants to take that feeling in your gut and redeem it. It's like he's saying, hey, Peter, that, that smell of the charcoal fire, it's not always going to make you feel like a failure. I'm going to redeem all of your charcoal fires. I'm going to purchase them back for you. I'm going to make them a place of rejoicing instead of a place of mourning. That's good news. That he would take our failures, even when we're reminded by them because of what we see or hear or smell or what we're around, when he takes those memories and he redeems them back for us. So, That's the story, the first part of the story. We're going to look at the second part next week. The truths that we can take away even from this portion are just innumerable. They are so great. But the ones I've chosen to pull out, I think I want to remind you about just one more time, and then we'll close. Here are the truths that we can take from this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. First, that after this, after this, whatever this is, This time, this difficulty, this pandemic, after this, Jesus reveals himself again. And his revelation is always going to come to whatever you find yourself in. If you're in a difficult place, if it's a hard moment, if it's a difficult season, keep looking for the revelation of Jesus. He's about to show up. Secondly, we need that we need, because of our tendency to go back to feel what is safe, to always be willing to go forward into what may be risky. We know that our tendency is to look back. But what Jesus is asking us to do is to not go back to what feels familiar, but rather go forward into what his purpose will be. Next, We need to be listening for the questions that he might ask us because oftentimes before Jesus reveals who he is in our situation, he's going to ask us questions that will reveal where we are. And that will then open us up to knowing that we need him. Finally, he wants to redeem every situation in your life, every brokenness, every failure, every disappointment, everything you've ruined. He wants to redeem our charcoal fires, the places where we've let him down, let others down, disappointed, been disappointed, ruined. Jesus is here to heal our hearts so that those triggers in our lives, the things that we see and hear and even smell, those charcoal fires no longer are reminders of our failure but rather they are trophies of his grace. 
I'm going to ask my wife to come back over and we're going to pray for you as been our tradition and ask the Lord to bless you as we go and just ask her if she'd like to share anything with us. As Chris was speaking about the ability of God to redeem the things that we think are unredeemable, it made me remember a message that uh, Curtis Foreman spoke, um, gosh, almost a decade ago. But he talked about the fact that God can redeem even the potential, that it's not just the act of redemption or cleaning our hearts or helping us walk in grace and forgiveness, but he actually redeems everything we think we've lost from our failure. That is redeeming to the uttermost. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians, uh, what is this, uh, chapter 1, where it says, He has delivered us and will deliver us again. Hmm. To me, that that delivering again is about redemption. It's the ongoing redemption. Yeah. And it says, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver, to restore, to redeem us. And that's our prayer today, hmm. that he doesn't just redeem the things we recognize as being in need of redemption, but that he redeems everything until there's nothing left to redeem. Hmm. You want to pray? I do. Let's pray. Father, the enormity of your power to redeem leaves us speechless. Hmm. Yes. It doesn't matter whether you have one burning thing in your mind that needs redemption, that needs God's touch, or whether you feel like your whole life is in need of his deliverance. He is not only able, but totally willing. And he redeems to the uttermost. So, Father, we come exactly as we are in our brokenness, in our need, in our fears and hopes, in our uncertainty. And we come because you are altogether trustworthy. We come because no one else can cure our incurable wound. That's right. We come because there is nothing better than you. So, Father, thank you for coming with the Holy Spirit's power into each heart, into each mind, into each life, and doing what only you can do, taking our charcoal fires, taking our failures, our sin, our shame, taking our mistakes, taking our regrets, and turning them into hope and promise for the future. Thank you for giving us back potential, destiny, something good. You have come for a hope and a future. And you paid every price for us to have those things. And so today, we release with one hand the thing that is keeping us from walking in your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Mm. And with the other hand, we receive the hope, the immovable anchor of our souls. Yes. 
which is Jesus, our hope of glory. Father, we thank you that your plan all along was to redeem us. Mm. It's beyond our imagination that even as you're creating, creating the world and all that is in it and knowing that it is good, that you had also, before the foundations of the earth, planned for our redemption. Yes. But in your economy, in the way you do things, in your kingdom, it is so much bigger than what we could imagine or think. So we thank you for your redemption. We thank you, God, that you show up on the seashores of our lives and you call out to us. And even though we think we're experts, we're really not. No. And you show yourself to be wise and true and strong in the middle of our weakness. And so we, we run ashore. We jump out of the boats that we've been in and we run to you because we know that even though we're a mess, we need to be with you. Redeem, Lord, our failures, our disappointments, the things that are holding us back, the things that are triggered in our lives, our charcoal fires, and help us be the oracle, the mouthpiece, the proclaimer, the witness of your resurrection power. We thank you for this day. Bless our mothers. Bless our church family. Bless the children in our church, Lord. Help us, O God, to be a blessing to so many others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you.